You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. On the first anniversary of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, President Joe Biden gave a fiery speech denouncing former President Donald Trump and blaming him for the riot. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. More than 725 people have been charged with a variety of crimes from January 6th, ranging from illegal parading to assaulting police officers. The chairman of the House Committee investigating January 6th, Benny Thompson, says they're looking at whether Trump's actions were part of a broader plan and whether they merit criminal referral to the Department of Justice. But I can say if there's anything that we come upon as a committee that we think would warrant a referral to the Department of Justice, we'll do that. Uh, And that's our oath as members of Congress. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. Bob, what do you make of Thompson's comments? The committee chairman did carefully choose his words in saying if there's anything we come upon as a committee that we think would warrant a referral to the Department of Justice, we'll do that. So in some ways, it was really generalized language. They certainly did not suggest that they have that information. The committee chairman was simply saying that if they do find it, they wouldn't rule out that possibility. That's a far cry from saying that they have evidence that is enough to make that kind of a referral. And of course, it would ultimately be up to the Department of Justice and the Attorney General Merrick Garland as to whether or not the Department of Justice would ever take up that referral. The committee chair and vice chair said that there was significant testimony, firsthand testimony from inside the White House that shows what Trump was doing during those 187 minutes from the start of the siege to his videotaped message to his supporters to leave the Capitol. 
And the vice chair, Liz Cheney, called it a dereliction of duty. Even if that is a dereliction of duty, that's not a criminal offense. No, that's exactly right. And if you listen carefully to Vice Chairman Cheney's statement about the criminal statute that she was referring to, which is 18 U.S.C. 1512, which makes it a felony to attempt to corruptly obstruct, influence, or impede any official proceeding, she said that the former president, through action or inaction, may have corruptly sought to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes. Taking action to impede a proceeding to count electoral votes would certainly constitute a possible criminal violation. But inaction, which seems to be more what the committee is looking at at this point based upon the evidence they have found, would not in and of itself constitute a crime. In our system, there is virtually no act of inaction or omission that constitutes criminal conduct. Criminal conduct is a knowing and willful violation to break the law. It can be a conspiracy where people agree to violate the law. You can aid and abet a violation if you know something is going to happen and then take some affirmative steps to assist in making that happen. But simply knowing about something and not acting is not a federal criminal violation. And so if all at the end of the day the committee has determined is that during those 187 minutes, the president knew about illegal conduct going on within the Capitol, but was slow to act, that is not something that ultimately would constitute a basis for a criminal violation. And it is certainly not something that I would expect the committee to refer over to the Department of Justice for possible criminal prosecution. And it seems as if They don't know what the president said in response to, for example, texts or in response to Ivanka Trump. You know, would that be necessary to find out? Well, I think that's exactly what they're focusing on now. They're trying to piece together minute by minute this 187-minute time period between the start of the Capitol insurrection and the time that former President Trump issued a message to the people who had stormed the Capitol to go home. And they're trying to find out what the president did during that 187 minutes. What did he know? Who did he speak with? What was he told? And what was his responses to some of the suggestions? Now, what the committee has uncovered is that there were several members of his staff, including his daughter, Ivanka, who urged him to make a public statement. And they were apparently several recorded statements that the White House ultimately decided not to release before the the statement that actually was released by former President Trump. That's the kind of information that the committee is trying to get, and that's some of the very information that the Trump White House is refusing to turn over and has now taken that case to the Supreme Court. What about Trump's speech at the Stop the Steal rally, which some say incited the crowd to march on the Capitol and do violence? Does he have any legal exposure from that? One thing, of course, that former President Trump actually did do in an affirmative way was to speak at the now infamous Stop the Steal rally shortly before the attack. Some critics have argued that his words at that rally constitute incitement. In other words, that those words incited the violent acts 
and that could be the basis for a criminal prosecution. But this type of criminal offense is rarely charged because of a U.S. Supreme Court decision in 1969 that held that the First Amendment protects speech unless it incites imminent lawless action. So they would have to parse the president's words carefully, something that has already been done, and they would have to determine that those words were directly calling for imminent lawless action. I think what you find, if you listen carefully to the president's words at that rally, that a lot of the language was vague. At times, he suggested that the audience act peacefully. And so it's going to be difficult, I think, to try to argue that those words somehow incited this crowd. And I think that's why we've seen nothing done on the basis of words that were spoken at that rally by former President Trump that led up to the January 6th insurrection. Some experts say it's dangerous for the committee to make a criminal referral because it might set a precedent. Do you agree with that? Well, it is something that I think the committee needs to be very careful about because congressional committees are not criminal investigatory agencies. They don't investigate crimes. That is not their function. Their job is to conduct investigations in order to consider future legislation. They have the right to investigate incidents that happen, but with the goal towards writing legislation to prevent those incidents from happening again in the case of the insurrection. So the concern here is that if it appears as if this committee is more of a criminal investigatory agency rather than a congressional agency, it does set a dangerous precedent. And the committee has requested, for example, interviews from a couple of Republican congressmen, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Jim Jordan of Ohio. Both of these individuals were allegedly involved in the events on January 6th. But all of that does tread very closely to a situation in which you have a subsequent administration investigating the prior administration. And as we know in Washington, eventually you're in the minority, even though today you may be in the majority. And so I think there is some real concern that we don't want to have a situation in which as soon as one administration is out of office, or in this case, as soon as the House of Representatives might change over from one party control to another, that they immediately begin an investigation into the prior administration. And the committee is actually looking into whether it can subpoena those reluctant members of Congress. It's also locked in a legal battle with Trump to try to get his White House records, which are being held at the National Archives. Tell us about Trump's effort to get the Supreme Court to step in. So the Trump administration is seeking to override President Joe Biden's decision to waive executive privilege over these documents. And this case has already been decided by the D.C. Court of Appeals in a 3 nothing decision in which the court said that these records were vital to the committee's investigation. Trump is basically arguing that despite the fact that President Biden is not asserting executive privilege, that the former president, in this case President Trump, still has a basis to assert executive privilege on his own. And that what's really happening here is that this committee is engaged in a criminal investigation and that it is not being done for a legitimate legislative function, which is the purpose of a congressional investigation. They're basically arguing that it's a very broad investigation, that they're investigating President Trump because they view him as a political foe, somebody who is potentially a candidate for president in 2024, 
and that this is all politically motivated and that it is not tied to a legitimate legislative function. And therefore, they're asking the Supreme Court to step in and to allow the president to withhold about 800 pages of material involving protected presidential communication. This is a case the Supreme Court doesn't have to take. There's no conflict in the circuits. They could pass it by, in which case the decision of the D.C. Court of Appeals would be the law of the land on this issue because it is an extremely narrow issue. And we're going to find out very soon whether or not the Supreme Court is going to take up this case. In the meantime, the documents will remain secret. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. Former President Donald Trump's two eldest children, Ivanka and Don Jr., are trying to quash subpoenas for their testimony from the New York Attorney General, who's investigating whether Trump's real estate business manipulated the value of key assets for tax and insurance purposes. But will they fare any better than their brother Eric, who was forced to testify in the investigation in October of 2020 after a losing battle in court? Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, who teaches at Columbia Law School. Jennifer, this investigation has been going on since 2019. What do you make of the timing of these subpoenas? It is kind of interesting that it happened as the select committee is also ratcheting up its investigation and kind of getting closer to the inner circle as well. You know, you do tend to hold the more important witnesses to the end because you want to gather as much evidence as you can kind of gather your ammunition, if you will, before you speak with the people who are kind of central to the inquiry, your targets. So maybe that suggests that she and her team are getting close to the end of the inquiry, that they've now noticed the Trump kids. So it might suggest that, that she's getting towards the end. Uh, But it's hard to tell, you know, these investigative types are usually pretty close-lipped about how things are proceeding inside. What are the Trumps arguing to the court to try to get the subpoenas quashed? They have tried to say that it's improper that the depositions are being noticed at a time when there's also a a parallel criminal inquiry going on. But, you know, this is not that uncommon. In, In financial cases, for example, you will see a financial criminal investigation going on at the Department of Justice at the same time that the SEC may be investigating for a civil case and those things running in parallel sometimes. So it does happen. There's no inherent problem with it. I mean, the Trumps are going to have to decide how they proceed knowing that any testimony they give in a civil matter can be used against them criminally or against the company criminally if it comes to that. I wouldn't say it's commonplace. Oftentimes, the criminal will take precedence and the SEC or whatever the civil entity is will hold, but it sometimes does happen that they happen at the same time. So I don't think an argument that there's something inherently improper about that is going to carry the day. Are they alleging, though, that there's bad faith, that the New York AG is trying to take their depositions so that that evidence can be used against them in the criminal case that she's also a part of? Well, they've been alleging bad faith all along. I mean, that's basically Trump's number one answer to anything against him, whether it's a criminal inquiry, a civil case. It's always somehow politically motivated or in bad faith. You know, you just can't get around that argument they have a little bit of ammunition here. I mean, Tish James, when she was campaigning, made some ill-advised comments about how she wanted to go after Trump. And the fact that her team is working with the Manhattan DA on the criminal case 
gives these claims a little bit more gravitas than they might otherwise have. But this is straight out of the Trump playbook, you know, to, to claim that this is all kind of bad faith political motivation. These are two inquiries that have been going on for quite some time. The Manhattan DA has been leading the criminal inquiry, and then some of the Fish James folks apparently joined forces with them. But, you know, again, I, I can't see how that kind of argument is going to sway a judge, for example, to say that they cannot be deposed in this otherwise legitimate civil matter just because there is an ongoing criminal inquiry. I mean, that's the risk that people take when they do things that open them up to civil investigations and criminal investigations. Is it wise for them to testify in the civil case knowing that a criminal case is being contemplated? Well, it's not wise for them to give up any information in in either case if they can help it. And that's why they're fighting so hard against it. But ultimately, they may be forced to do that. And again, they'll have to be quite careful because anything they say in the civil case will be able to be used against them. But, you know, that's why you shouldn't lie. That's why you have to be careful in terms of what you say. But that's just the way the ball bounces. If you've done things that are illegal and you've done things that subject you to lawsuits and then you're asked to come and tell the truth about them, you know, the chips fall where they may on that one. If they take the fifth in the civil case, will that create an inference against them? It does create an inference in the civil case. Of course, it can't be used in the criminal case. That's everyone's Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate themselves. But yes, that's part of the challenge for them. That's part of the pickle is that they have to decide whether they want to refuse to testify because of potential criminal liability. And by the way, that could have been the case regardless of whether there's a criminal inquiry or not. I mean, if they know that they did things as part of their work at Trump Org that subjected them to potential criminal liability somewhere, somehow down the road, there doesn't have to be a pending inquiry for them to claim their Fifth Amendment privilege, but they have to think about that, you know, whether they want to do that or not, because then you can get that inference in the civil case. Eric Trump fought the subpoena from the New York AG and was forced to testify. But could a judge here with the criminal case pending, could a judge look at this and say, I'm, I'm going to hold off on this until the criminal case is over or issue some kind of protective order? Well, I mean, a judge has a lot of powers to be able to do things like that, but it's hard to see a judge interfering with their cases like that. I mean, if, if you convince the judge that it was in bad faith and that they were, you know, acting, they were politically motivated or, or otherwise motivated by a desire to get him that wasn't part of the merits of the case, then maybe you'd see a judge try to enter some order. But I would be surprised to see a judge interfering in that way. And I say that because I just don't think they're going to be able to show any bad faith. Uh, and so the judge wouldn't really have anything to, to hang their hat on in terms of saying that, uh, that they couldn't proceed with the deposition. I want to turn for a moment to former Governor Andrew Cuomo. The Albany District Attorney has dropped criminal charges against Cuomo over allegations that he groped a woman in the executive mansion. What's the significance? Well, it's a big deal because it means there will be no criminal case. You know, there was a, a moment there, maybe a couple of hours back when the sheriff had filed this criminal complaint 
And before the Albany DA came in and said, hey, wait a minute, we weren't part of this. We're still evaluating the case. When everyone thought that meant that he would be criminally charged with the groping incident. And now we know that that will not happen. So it's a really strange episode as far as law enforcement not being on the same page and the relationship between the DA and the sheriffs and who knows what happened with all of that. But it's great news for Andrew Cuomo because along with a couple of other district attorneys closing their investigations into whether he committed crimes in their districts, uh, it means that he won't be facing a criminal charge, which, you know, that that's a huge thing hanging over someone's head. You know, he's still got a lot of issues relating to all of this, including likely civil suits and the like, but not having the possibility of going to jail for that behavior, I'm sure is a big relief to him. The DA said that he finds the witness credible, but he can't prove it in a court of law. He knew from the beginning that this was going to be a he said, she said situation. So if he finds the witness credible, why not bring charges? It's a tough issue and a good question. There's a lot of space between we believe the witness and we can prove it in court using admissible evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. These are very, very challenging cases. And so I think if you're going to bring a case like this, like let's just take the main case, the one that the Albany DA just said he won't charge, the groping allegation. You have an incident, only two people were there. You have some things you can corroborate, like the fact that they worked together, they were there on the day and time in question, you know, those sorts of things. But what you don't have is the kind of evidence that makes her account vastly more believable than his account, right? The kind of thing where she ran out in a panic and people saw her freaking out and she immediately told a whole bunch of people exactly what had happened, you know, the day of. Those are the sorts of things that you don't have. And so while you might say, I believe her more than him, you know, 55%, 60%, 75%, even 80%, can you get to beyond a reasonable doubt? which is a very, very high standard, and it's that way for a reason, but it does make it very, very challenging to charge these kinds of cases. And so, you know, the the Albany DA apparently went the way of the other DAs to evaluate the incidents that happened in their areas and just decided that they didn't have enough proof to push it up to where they needed it to be to bring the case to trial. When the New York AG announced this report on Cuomo's conduct with women, which included accounts of 11 incidents of sexual harassment, she said that he had violated state and federal law. I never figured out what the federal law violations would even be, but did she also exaggerate? I think she actually was very careful in the wording uh, because there are things that were done in connection with covering up the allegations in not dealing with the complaints in the appropriate way, not sending them to the appropriate place that are arguably violations of state law, but not criminal law. So, you know, I think that you can construe those remarks to be violations of workplace related regulations and not necessarily criminal law. So, you know, I'm not sure also what James meant, but it is possible, I think, to reconcile the evidence that was in the report with a decision not to prosecute. Remember, again, too, Tish James herself is a former prosecutor, but she may have a different view. I mean, she may say, look, if this was my case and I was a DA sitting in Albany, I would bring it. And 
she would be justified in doing that if she's willing to take the risk that she can win that case. David Suarez is a different person, made a different decision. You know, DAs have that kind of authority. So whether it was her saying, if it were me, I would do it criminally, or whether she was being a little bit more careful and talking not necessarily about the criminal laws, but regulations that govern the workplace problems that happened in that office, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, I think it's possible that that's more what was going on here. Thanks for being on the show, Jennifer. That's former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, who teaches at Columbia Law School. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The government is still seeking to hold hundreds of people accountable for the attack. More than 725 people have been charged with a variety of crimes from the insurrection, ranging from illegal parading to assaulting police officers. Most have pleaded not guilty, setting up the potential for a swell of trials this year. There is also the question of whether the former president or his closest allies will be criminally charged. Meanwhile, Trump is fighting half a dozen civil suits for his role in the events, and at least four were filed by more than a dozen police officers who say they suffered physical and emotional injuries in the riot, including two that were filed just this week. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Eric, tell us about the latest lawsuits. So the latest lawsuit to be filed uh, comes from a Capitol Police officer named Marcus Moore, uh, he's worked with the Capitol Police for 10 years, and of course, he was there uh, on January 6th. He is accusing Trump of uh, being liable for 
the physical and emotional injuries that he suffered that day. And he says that the former president is responsible because of the rhetoric that he uh, had been putting out about the election, the fake claims that it had been a stolen election. And of course, the so-called Stop the Steal rally on January 6th before the insurrection and also Trump's failure to try to stop the insurrection as it was playing out on TV. All of that combined, this Officer Moore says this makes Trump responsible for his, his injuries. And, you know, on the same day that this suit was filed, another suit was filed against Trump by two other police officers with the Metropolitan Police Department, the, those officers there in Washington, D.C., who, of course, had to respond to the attack on Congress because the National Guard wasn't there. So a lot of those Metropolitan Police officers were also injured, and this lawsuit makes it four, four lawsuits altogether by police officers against Trump. He hints at perhaps a conspiracy because he said the protesters were armed and organized. They acted as though they knew the Capitol's vulnerabilities. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we've seen this in some of the other complaints that have been filed, uh, including by members of Congress who sued Trump over what happened that day. And they point out that some of these attackers, including many of the sort of right-wing militia types from the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and whatnot, that when they entered the building through broken windows, this police officer noted that they seemed to be running past obvious interior windows that they might have tried to break through and went straight instead to very specific windows that the officer points out were among the very few that had not been reinforced during a recent remodeling of the Capitol where they reinforced over 600 interior windows to make them resistant to bullets and things like that. And some of these windows were left out of that program because they weren't able to actually manage those particular windows. And they seem to know exactly which ones they could easily break and jump through, according to this officer. So he didn't really say how he thinks they knew. But of course, there have been plenty of people who have speculated that even some members of Congress, Trump supporting uh, members of Congress, may have somehow coordinated with these people. Of course, that's suspicions and allegations that hasn't been determined, but uh, that seems to be what he's hinting at here. Arson. So how does this Capitol Police officer claim in his lawsuit that Trump is responsible for the insurrection? So he claims that Trump incited the riot that ultimately led to his physical and emotional injuries. Uh, and we can, you know, you can point to this Stop the Steal rally that happened just before um, the attack on Congress, where the people he was speaking to left that rally and went straight to the Capitol and it assaulted it. So they just sort of draw this line from, from Trump claiming that the election was stolen falsely. I think he, he claimed it would be stolen even before the election took place. So he was telling people that literally democracy was going to be destroyed if they didn't do something about it. Uh, so when you say those kind of words, then maybe this officer is saying, well, what do you expect is going to happen? Of course, they're going to try to save democracy because that's what they think they need to do. Of course, this is just alleged. It has not been proven that Trump incited the riot, but this is this is certainly what this officer is claiming. He talks about a member of Congress who, you know, almost had a heart attack. But he doesn't name that member of Congress? No, he doesn't name this uh, member of Congress in the complaint, but just when he's describing what happened to him that day and uh, the hours that he was involved in uh, protecting those lawmakers, he points out that they had to evacuate the lawmakers to an interior room 
and that one of the lawmakers began experiencing chest pains and that this officer who sued had to put off the lawmaker on a, a swivel you know, office chair and roll him through the Capitol to safety. Um, it doesn't say who that was. We don't know who it was, but you know, it was just one moment that uh, the officer described, including he also described how before uh, you know, they, they moved lawmakers, uh, they were, he was part of a group of officers protecting an interior door leading to the House chamber, and that they were physically assaulted. They were crushed up against the wall by protesters. The protesters were yelling uh, to take their guns, kill them with their own guns. Uh, they, you know, clearly were afraid for their lives. Um, they didn't end up getting his gun. We don't know exactly, you know, how they escaped that situation, but they did. So clearly the officer was uh, pretty terrified for his life. Do they make demands for damages? Do they name numbers? No, there are no numbers here. Uh, so we're not exactly sure uh, how much uh, financial damages they might be seeking if they do prevail in these cases. But, uh, you know, all told, there are you know over a dozen officers who are plaintiffs in these four lawsuits that have been filed uh, over the last year by law enforcement. And, you know, you can imagine how uh, these kinds of damages can balloon pretty easily. You could see it getting into the millions of dollars if all of these cases prevail. So Trump has responded to one of the suits. What was his response? So former President Trump has said that he is not liable uh, for a variety of reasons. He says that he's not vicariously liable, as he puts it, for what happens when uh, people he speaks to uh, go on and injure other people. Um, and he sort of phrased it kind of interestingly. interestingly. He said he didn't have a, a, a legal a duty of care, a legally enforceable duty of care to his political rivals or anyone else who might uh, be confronted by people he speaks to. No, it seems like it would be an uphill battle, you know, to find Trump liable in this case. Have you talked to people about how hard this case will be to prove? You know, I, I've spoken to a few people who say that some of these civil cases, they say the criminal cases, you know, there's over 700 people have been charged, uh, you know, using all this evidence that was compiled at the Capitol, that those cases seem a lot more straightforward. Uh, the civil cases, you know, might be harder because as they point out, some of these experts point out, we don't have a lot of case law when it comes to insurrection. So uh, they're sort of going to have to be creative and find ways to you know, back their claims in court, and that it's, it's just never uh, an easy task to try to make a case like this when you just don't have a lot of law to rely on. So we've never had a president uh, be accused of inciting an insurrection before. So how do we know what's protected by free speech? What is too incendiary to be justifiably said at a rally like that, especially when you know that the rally is filled with hundreds of people who are your most ardent supporters, the most angry people who really truly believe the election was stolen. You're telling them in a fiery speech, uh, you need to march on the Capitol and stop Joe Biden from being certified. You know, no, he did not say to invade the Capitol and kill people. Of course, Donald Trump did not say that, but they're going to argue that, you know, you Two plus two equals four, <laughs> right. I guess. But that, but that doesn't always hold up in court. So it'll be really interesting to see what does happen with these cases because uh, you could very easily see it getting tossed out, right? I mean, we have very strong free speech protections in this country. And the people who did what they did in the Capitol 
are responsible for their actions, and Trump wasn't personally there. So it will be interesting to see what happens. Do they name as defendants the the groups like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers? So that lawsuit filed uh, this week by the Capitol Police officer only named Donald Trump as a defendant. There were lawsuits by members of Congress as well? That's correct. This is another civil suit where they claim that uh, a variety of co-conspirators, including those right-wing groups and uh, Trump and others, were responsible for what happened. And of course, these lawmakers were um, you know, the target of this insurrection. So they believe that they have uh, you know, claims here, uh, civil claims here to make against people responsible for what happened that day. You could imagine uh, a similar situation in any sort of, you know, office building where a group of people were terrorized. Uh, they might find claims against the people who terrorized them. So that, that's what they're doing here. It's similar to some of the off, uh, lawsuits filed by the officers, but they do name the right wing groups as well. Um, you know, they connect Trump, for example, to the Proud Boys. They say, you know, during one of the presidential debates with Biden, when Trump was asked to condemn white supremacy, he didn't really do so and instead sort of told the Proud Boys specifically to stand back and stand by, which everyone at the time thought was kind of strange thing to say. Um, then lo and behold, the Proud Boys are there, very organized, um, attacking the Capitol building. So, you know, they're trying to draw these connections uh, to hold them all jointly responsible, maybe not for all of the exact same actions, but to allege that they were all co-conspirators. Thanks, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.